Hey everybody, welcome to 2020's underseen or underrated entry, which is Spiral, but not that one. And you're Joe, and I'm Trace. Who? What? Where? <laughs> I know, I have to get in the habit of doing these too, we don't do them that often. But um, yeah, everyone, this is actually, um, we are pulling from the Patreon vault. This is an episode on Curtis David Harder's Spiral, which is actually currently in probably forever streaming on Shudder because it is a Shudder original film. So mm-hmm. make sure you're not watching Darren Limbalston's Spiral from the Book of Saw and that you're not watching Adam Green's Spiral or one of the... Um, Millions of other titles. There's a lot of spirals out there. <laughs> <laughs> it's the gay one. Yes, it's the gay one, which of course is one of the reasons why we ended up picking it for our entry in this theme. And Trace, even though we recorded this episode well over two years ago, mm-hmm. I will say one of the things that always stuck out for me in the discussion was you talking about how you ended up coming around to Jeffrey Boyer Chapman's character in this movie. Yes. Um, I, 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 th- I mean, again, this is pre-Canada's uh, Drag Race, everyone, so not everyone knew who he was at this point, but... um. I- uh, yeah, I I, ha- I struggled with this. This is a film that I saw way before we recorded it um, when I was in a screener uh, during the festival circuit. And I didn't love his performance. And I think when we when I rewatched it and we recorded this episode, you know, a couple years ago, I had like a mini breakthrough during the recording. <laughs> and I don't want to spoil it here, but I don't know. I think it makes for good listening content. I agree. And I think if nothing else, it's one of those key conversations that particularly gay men need to hear and maybe need to think through a little bit more. But also we talk about, um, I mean, again, we're not going to give away the baby with the bathwater here. So here's just another tease. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but no, we, we also talk about like, queer representation, you know, like uh, this, this is a period film set in the 90s in suburbia. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of critiques, yeah, about the the representation in this film. And I think we get into it about how, you know, like what what, what is good representation? With a queer community that is so diverse, so uh, full of many different types of people, who is the perfect gay couple, Joe? Mm-hmm. Indeed. And are we dissatisfied if we don't get that perfect thing after having been denied it for so long as queer audiences? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And of course, as y'all will see, or as you may know if you haven't seen this movie, this is not a perfect gay couple. There are trust issues, and uh, it's... Um, Shit happens. (laughs) Indeed. But yeah, if you want to hear more, I mean, basically, we'll stop hammering so you can just go and listen to it. But uh, this is a good taster of the kind of content that you get on the Patreon. Of course, we've got over 165 hours on there. So even though we're giving you this one for free, there's still a bevy of stuff out there. So, uh, you know, if you like what you hear, please do consider subscribing at patreon.com slash horrorqueers. So yeah, go there and uh, pick a tier and sign up. But um, obviously, since this is a previously recorded episode, we will not be doing housekeeping or teasing at the end of the episode. So why don't we get that out of the way here and tease what we were doing next week, Joe, for our final entry into Underseen and Underrated. So yeah, if you want even more content, go to that patron that we just um, plugged the fuck out of and support the show by becoming (laughs) a patron. If you subscribe this month, you will get episodes on Hulu's No Exit, also Hulu's Fresh, Ty West's X, and a fun discussion on our favorite horror films where the villain wins. Also, our audio commentary for the month will be on Blade 2, just in time for its 20th anniversary. Oh boy, yeah. 
And as Trace, you mentioned, next week we're wrapping up this theme of underseen and underrated. So for 2021, I can tease for you folks that we are sticking with this independent theme. So it's going to be a smaller scale film from 2021. And uh, yeah, that's all you get. So be on the lookout on our socials on Friday for that answer. Uh, But until then, I mean, let's get on with the show and enjoy Spiral. Hmm. Good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The following show is just horrifying. Beware. Sheriff, you're not cheating on your wife if you eat my lemon square. Your lemon squares taste like ass. And welcome back to Horror Queers. It's your Patreon exclusive, and we're talking about small town cults. We're talking 90s references, and we're talking what's a word for an Uncle Tom but for gay people? And I'm Joe. And I'm Trace, and we're talking um, hollowed out chests of teenage girls. Oof, oof, oof. (laughs) You knew something bad was going to happen to her, but you didn't see that coming. You know, okay, so... Uh, Spoilers for Spiral, everybody. Yes, sorry, we are talking Spiral, the 2019 horror film. Well, well, it was made in... It did festivals in 2019, but it was officially released on Shudder in 2020. So, yeah, there's that. I did get to watch this film last year, Joe, and I had pinged you on it. I was like, you know, I thought it was okay. Like, I didn't love it. I had some issues with Jeffrey Boyer Chapman's performance, and I'll get to those in a minute, because I think I figured out why I had an issue with it, and it's on me. Okay. But... I was watching this last night, and my husband's out of town because he's he's seeing his family, and um, he's taking care of a, a family member. And I got so supremely creeped out and scared by the last, like, ten-ish Ooh. minutes of this movie that I actually had a nightmare last night about it. Wow. Like, when was the last time that's I- happened? I haven't had that happen in a long time. I mean, like, you know, we're, we're recording this in, you know, the time of COVID and, like, stress levels are high and blah, 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 blah. And so my, my dreams have been a bit more vivid lately. But this was, like, this is the first time in a long time that I've, like, seen a scary movie, gone to bed, and had a nightmare. Because there was something about just me being alone in my house last night. Because I, I, I finished the movie, I walked straight to my bed, and I, like, laid down to read. But, like, even just, like, walking from, like, my, my living room to my bedroom, I was just kind of, like... I feel like there's people watching me. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there's something very powerful about this movie. And I think, to me, it's an example of a really successful way of treading the line between are they crazy or is it actually happening? And so often I hate these kinds of movies. Like, I'm Mm -hmm. not a big fan of occultism because I feel like it often just veers into the like, oh, everybody knows what's happening, but nobody's talking about it except for your protagonist who's slowly going mad. And you're like, yeah, okay, we've seen that a million times. But I was shocked at how effective Spiral is at just getting under your skin. And I'm going to say it right off the top. I don't know if this movie hits harder as a queer viewer, but there were a ton of moments that just absolutely connected to me. Well, what what I like, and again, listeners, if you haven't seen it, it's streaming on Shutter now, so go see it, go watch it. What I like is that 
you know, we've we've seen that, oh, the character, like, people think they're going crazy, they don't believe them. In this case, though, the inciting incident for this character's, would we call it a mental illness? Yeah, he's clearly still dealing with things. Like, those, the pills get switched, but he's on pills before any of this happens. Right. I mean, like, I guess I could say post-traumatic stress disorder, but whatever, whatever the pills are for, we don't really know specifically. But I'll say mental illness, for lack of a better term, sure. is linked to a hate crime. And, I mean, I'm not saying it's the first movie that's ever done that, but it's still frustrating to watch this happen, especially as his husband does not believe him and is progressively, like, more and more, like, dismissive of his concerns. Mm-hmm. But when you bring in the race aspect to it, you can see it to where it's like, okay, well, this is a gay black man who has had a, a traumatic experience in his past, whereas you have an older privileged white man Who's also mm-hmm. gay, but probably hasn't had the same experiences of, uh, I mean, yes, I'm sure there have been anti-gay things he's experienced in his life, but not anti-white things he's experienced in his life. Right. And it, it was frustrating to watch that happen. Oh, for sure. I, I mean, I, I, it's fine. There's been a couple of folks who have reached out to me when they saw that we were watching this and we were planning to cover it, and they've kind of low-key DM'd and been like, I'm curious to hear what you think about this, because I was really put off by the fact that this queer couple doesn't support each other. And to me, that's a double-edged sword, because I 100% would love if it had been these two gay men against this small town, and like they Mm -hmm. fight back. But on the other hand, you know, we talk about representation, we talk about normalization, and part of me kind of loves the fact that, like, just because these two men are queer doesn't mean that they don't disbelieve each other or have friction in their marriage. And I thought that it was actually really real in a way that Aaron doesn't always believe Malik, the Jeffrey Boyer Chapman character, because there is some of that mental illness because Aaron is coming from a place of privilege, both from his skin color, but also because he came out as gay later in life. So he hasn't had to deal with all the bullshit that being queer from a younger age, never mind the fact that Aaron, from what we know, has also not gone through a hate crime. Like, Malik is fucked up in this movie. Well, it's also, I mean, again, it's important to note that this does play, t- this is a period piece. This film takes place in the mid-90s. I appreciate the lack of, like, Stranger Things-y, like, look at this, it's in the 90s, outside of, oh, like, the technology God. aspects. There is one reference to, like, an MC Hammer, and I was not here for it. <laughs> but to play devil's advocate for a moment, if you have ever been with someone who does suffer from mental illness, if you're the person that is that doesn't suffer from mental illness, it can be difficult sometimes. Now, that's not to say, and I don't think there's anything wrong in admitting that. And so on a level, I, I understood where Aaron was coming from, but also because we did, we haven't we haven't seen any instances of this occurring in their relationship before the film, the events of the film take place. So I think it's harder to, to really grasp why Aaron is behaving this way because we haven't seen these kind of instances happen before, but I am I can almost guarantee you they have. Yeah, because, I mean, there's the whole issue with Liam, which is that Malik is having secret clandestine phone calls with his dead lover who was killed in the hate crime that opens this film. So the presumption is that that is either a stress-induced reaction or that Malik is taking pills because he has maybe had some kinds of experiences like this before i mean the other big thing is that this isn't really a two-person film this is malik's film we don't 
actually mm-hmm. know that much about Aaron. Like, I do love that they're just these repeated shots of <laughs> Malik waking up every morning and Aaron's just gone. Like, he's he's just not present in this film for large portions of it. And I think, again, this is by design. But as a result, it does make it sometimes harder to understand the realities. Like, what does this relationship look like on a day-to-day basis? We get the opening, we just bought a house and we're excited and happy. And then that falls apart pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah. And I, sorry, I do want to back up and just clarify what I was saying earlier, because I, I don't want it to sound like it's like, oh, it really sucks if you're like partnered with someone who is like suffering from a mental illness. That's not what I was trying to say. I was just trying to like basically say that, you know, every day you wake up and it's, it's, it's different. It could be something different. And so, you know, when I've dated someone who suffered from like, you know, really bad depression, it's like, you don't know how they're going to wake up because you don't know. You always want them to be okay. And the fact mm-hmm. of the matter is that they're not going to be okay. And you have to learn to kind of embrace that and support that. Now, Aaron doesn't really do that in this film. And not it does time. kind of no. come. I mean, there's enough that happens <laughs> to like, mm-hmm. like, again, when we get to the end of the film, when Malik pulls a gun out and, you know, shoots uh, Lachlan Monroe's character, uh, Marshall, I think the movie does an okay enough job of explaining why Aaron behaves this way. I wouldn't have minded, like, even just a throwaway line, though, of, like, this has happened before. Yeah. And just to clarify, I don't think that your initial statement about being the partner of someone with mental illness, I don't think that came off badly. Part of the reality is that there's a stigma attached to mental illness that we don't often talk about. And, you know, we get these colorful depictions in film where it's like, well, all you have to do is love the person unconditionally and they'll be better one day. And it's like, let's that is not get the case. like a dawning sun. You're like, it doesn't fucking work that way. Like some days the sun comes up and everything's great. And other days you're like, oh, God, this is just rough for both of us. Right. And, and at the end of the day, all relationships take work. And it's yeah. not I don't even want to say that, like, you know, if, if one or more of the people in the relationship have a mental illness that it's more work it's just a different kind of work absolutely nobody said relationships were easy and then you introduce a cult into the mix and they're Mm -hmm. even more complicated but this movie did go up a bit in my ranking i think i gave it a three out of five when i watched it last year and i bumped it up to a three and a half because i do i mean the ending i think is fucking fantastic but i think it meanders a little bit across its 87 minute runtime but i was definitely affected more by it this time than I was a year ago. And I don't really know why that is, but maybe I was paying more attention. Uh, maybe. But, you know, um, I'm glad that people are going to get to see it now because I, I definitely I definitely think there's a lot to discuss about this film. Um, I mean, obviously, you already had people reach out to you to ask you questions about what you thought. Like, people have <laughs> things to say. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of the great things about this film is that it is unabashedly a queer horror film. Like this film is all about being queer and the horrors that accompany that. And it feels really fresh in that regard. Like it's shocking to me that this film is a period piece because I do think that it could work just as effectively in modern times. Like, Mm -hmm. unfortunately I don't think that we've made as much progress that you couldn't set this in 2019 or 2020 and say yeah people still fear what they don't understand and that's why we were able to capitalize on it oh yeah i think that too i mean i i understand like i mean when we get to the end of the film when it's like oh people like don't care about when they're afraid blah blah blah, and they will always when the tides change there will be something else to fear it's all like that that whole monologue is a little bit too on the nose for me as are like 
there's frequent not frequent but there's a few cutaways to the american flag during things and i'm like eh, mm-hmm. it's like a bit like hammering me over the head with the message like i don't really need that i can get it but it's fine <laughs> uh well let's save the hammering us over the head discussion for the next patreon episode shall we because that is antebellum in a fucking key oh god yes absolutely um we have not recorded that episode yet listeners but we have watched the movie and um we have thoughts Woof. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm um, back to Spiral. So yeah, th- so this film, listeners, if y'all listen to our episode on what keeps you alive, you're going to hear a lot of familiar names because this seems to be a circle of friends in Canada who just really like making movies together. Well, as we talked about repeatedly, Canada's basically the size of a small kitchen table and everybody knows each other. Uh, <laughs> so this is directed by Curtis David Harder. Uh, this is his third feature film. Um, his first two were nothing like super notable, but he did do a 2017 movie called In Control. And that is one word. Have you heard of this movie, Joe? I have not. I wasn't even going to mention it, but the composer and the cinematographer of this film both worked on it. So, um, and then we've got co-writers in Colin Minahan, who listeners may know as the director and the writer of What Keeps You Alive. But he fixes his, what may, may be construed as an error for a, him, him being a straight man writing a queer story, by co-writing this film with a queer writer as well in John Poliquin. Poliquin hasn't, like, done a bunch. Um, he's best known for actually directing great encounters too and so that's how they know each other because Colin Minahan co-directed and co-wrote Grave Encounters 1 he co-wrote Grave Encounters 2 but did not return to direct despite making a cameo in the film along with Jeffrey Boyer Chapman uh, the plot thickens no I remember we watched my husband and I watched Grave Encounters 2 a couple weeks ago and um he was like there's basically like a whole thing about vloggers and like there's like a rapid cut of like just different vloggers talking about the first grave encounters movie and chapman's one of the vloggers who appears for like five seconds oh okay so he doesn't have a substantial part but they would have known each other at least in passing right i mean it's important to note that i think grave encounters 2 came out in 2012 so like chapman wasn't a name like he hadn't even been on unreal yet but yeah uh and yeah basically i mean all the crew of this film they're all it's very incestuous they all work on a lot of similar things together um (laughs) and i guess i wonder if they just like pass like they'll come up with the film and they'll just like be like okay cool it's your turn to direct it (laughs) maybe yeah or like who's available who's the most interested um, but yeah, I did want to point out that with, that with Poliquin, like, you know, one of the criticisms of What Keeps You Alive is that it was that um, while Minahan was the only writer on What Keeps You Alive, so you have this straight man telling a tale of two lesbian women, we at least have one half of the writing team on this film being a queer man who is telling a queer story. And I do wonder if that was intentional after the criticisms Minahan got for What Keeps You Alive. Yeah, I, I mean, as we talked about on that episode... It's not exactly clear what Minahan did with the criticism, but I do think it's notable that this is his next film, quote unquote, right? Like he's, he's, you know, been a little bit prolific. Like he's also involved in Z, which is the other film that came out earlier this year on Shudder, which is a great horror film. It's really good. And the cinematographer for this film, Bradley Stuckel, also shot Z. Right. So they like to work together. Um, I think Minihan maybe just gets involved in a bunch of different people's projects wherever he can. I mean, it's nice that if you've got friends in the industry, you can kind of rely on somebody who's maybe, like I would argue that he's maybe the most high profile of these people. So he might be the one who kind of gets things greenlit or knows how things work. And then he brings on his friends. Speculation. But it, it is telling to me that he makes another queer project and this time is more explicit about bringing on a queer creative. 
Speaking of speculation, I do want to point out that um, I'm basing my statement that Poliquin is gay based on his, his inclusion on Wikipedia's list of LGBTQ directors. <laughs> so, <laughs> Super reliable information source. <laughs> Fingers crossed, y'all. Fingers crossed. And if that is not correct, um, my bad. But we're going to proceed with this episode as if that is the case. I mean, there's so much in this film that smacks of lived experience or like we did a bunch of research on this because there's a lot in this film that rings authentically true. I th- There's a lot of, I don't even want to say nuances, but yeah, there's a lot of moments that I'm like, I don't feel like a straight man would have written that. Like the, I, I don't have a list of those things, but as we go through the plot, I mean, we'll, we'll I'm sure we'll touch on those things because yeah, I didn't know that I was gay in the nineties. I didn't grow up as an adult gay male in the nineties, but um, I felt a lot of the things in this film. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I felt all the things. I felt all the things. But yeah, um, I, I don't know. I mean, there's not really much else left to like discuss because I don't have a major production history for this. I don't really know a lot of the backstory behind it. So let's just jump into this plot, man. All right. So after a prologue set in October of 1983, in which an interracial couple of teen boys are the target of a hate crime, we jump ahead to November of 1995. And I wonder if just because this is a notable hate crime that opens a film, do you want to do a compare and contrast to It Chapter 2? I was literally going to say the exact same thing because... I feel like it's going to come up. I feel like it is too. It's definitely less brutal than that film. Yes. I feel like it also helps that it's uh, spread out throughout the film as well. So like you're getting little snapshots of it. Like you you 100% understand what's happened the very first time you see it, but you don't get all the details and the imagery until later. Right. But even still, though, once you get it later, it's not like we get the extended violence that was present in it, Chapter 2. And if y'all listen to our episode on that, we both defended it because... And honestly, this will be a discussion, too, to have with Antebellum. <laughs> but yeah, um, while I totally understand why that that opening gay bashing in it, Chapter 2, was triggering for some, I still think it's necessary to include scenes like that so that maybe people who think that, you know, the queer community has it fine now or, like, we don't have it as bad as we used to can still see that we don't. I felt that it was really important. Like, I took a really hard stance. Like, I think that film needs to be in that. I think that scene needs to be in that film. Now, granted, it could have been done like this, where you get the implication of it, but it's not nearly as visceral. Yeah. I think both work. I still think I do prefer the It Chapter 2 scene, just because I it, it hits harder for me. But the difference is, in this film, you see the after effects of that gay bashing, whereas in It Chapter 2, you don't get to see that. Yeah, that's true. And I know that that was one of the issues that people had with it, is that it feels so removed from what the rest of the film is doing. That, to me, is also misreading Richie and not acknowledging the fact that there's trauma that's carried through into his storyline as, like, a repressed boy who grew up to be a repressed man and doesn't come to grips with his sexuality until basically returning home and having to deal with that Mm -hmm. whereas here i think it not only sets up malik as an individual who's suffering from ptsd who's dealing with mental illness but i think it also sets the film up to make you just seek out things like microaggressions and little cues where you're like okay 
Yes, that is homophobia. Yes, I see it in action. Like we're basically saying, keep an eye out because this is pervasive and it informs the actions of what will come. Exactly. Okay. So 1995, we've got Malik, who is now a man, played by Jeffrey Boyer Chapman. He's got a husband named Aaron, who is played by Ari Cohen. Weird connection, though. Uh, Ari, I think it, I'm going to say Ari, but sure, Ari Cohen. But no, actually. <laughs> He actually plays Stan's dad in both It movies. <laughs> the rabbi. Oh, really? He plays Rabbi Uris. <laughs> I mean, I joke that it's like Canada is actually a really fucking big place, but you do see certain Canadian actors getting a lot of work in different things. I mean, he, he's bar- I mean, again, he's barely in both films. I think he, he gets like a scene in each film. And th- that I thought that maybe this actor had been in more things and he's been in a lot of things, but it's like a lot of like super tiny roles in film yeah. and television like across, since 1990. There you go. Welcome to your big breakout. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they also have a 16-year-old daughter, and this is clearly Aaron's daughter from before he came out when mm-hmm. he was with a woman. And this is Kayla. She is played by Jennifer Laporte. And they are moving to a new home in a small town called Rusty Creek. And, sorry, why, why are they moving there again? Every in- Implication seems to be that Aaron wanted to get away from the big city. Okay. So it wasn't like specific because I mean, obviously Malik works remotely and mm-hmm. Aaron does really know something. what he does. <laughs> Literally don't know what Aaron does because he's not important in that regard. Yeah, for sure. That That's where though your 1995 setting comes in though, because even watching this when I was like, oh my God, two gay men with a daughter. Uh, sorry, an interracial gay couple with a daughter yeah. moving, moving to, to a country. small town. <laughs> I mean, it, no, it, 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 it sucks because I, I, I remember watching this and I was like, well, that's a mistake. Why would you do that? And it's yeah. obviously the, the, the mindset is like, you shouldn't have to worry about it. You should just be able to do it. But I'm telling you right yeah. now that 1995, I mean, Jesus Christ. I mean, 2020 in certain parts, like mm-hmm. you're not moving to the country like, I'm sorry, you got to TLC that shit and stick to the rivers and the lakes that you're used to. Like, you got to stay in the big city. So important to note, and this is something I don't know that it 100% pays off, but I like it as a bit of a metaphor. The minute that they cross the bridge into Rusty Creek, something cracks the windshield, which is like, welcome home, danger. It reminds me of that uh, opening scene of The Invitation where they like hit the wolf or whatever before they go to the dinner party. So it's just like, yeah, one of those things. But I mean, the 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 mood throughout this film is like no 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 from the get-go <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> like get the fuck out of here this is a bad idea god bless the people who try to power through a bad situation it's like or you could just recognize like this ain't arachnophobia you can't just call in julian sands and <laughs> the cult exterminator John goodman <laughs> yeah like you can't just call an exterminator to get rid of like racism and homophobia it doesn't work that way ah oh, dear Okay, so they settle in over some pizza, and our first cue that something is wrong is that they are being observed by someone outside. And we will later come to realize that this is Mr. Reinhardt, their neighbor, played by Paul McGaffey. Yeah, and he's uh, he is required to do one thing and one thing only, and that is stare creepily at them. Yeah, that's what we call an easy day on the acting job, folks. You stand <laughs> there for about 14 hours looking at a building. Yep. 
<laughs> For some people, that's being an extra. And here, <laughs> it means that you're an integral character. He is. He is at that. So the next day, Malik unpacks his office, and in these contents is a Polaroid of him and Aaron in drag that he pins up on the wall. Mm-hmm. And he also has a cracked pair of glasses from the boy in the prologue, which just honestly made me super fucking sad it made me sad it made me angry because i mean and and that's not fair of me to say that because obviously i mean like it's a for me it's like well that's just a constant reminder of that and i'm like why would Mm -hmm. you want to remember that but at the same time it's like well you you should because you can't otherwise it's just repression you know you should remember that stuff but it's also clearly something he still hasn't come to terms with Oh, yeah, he has not addressed this issue at all. I did wonder, though, like, we don't ever get a conversation aside from the kind of twisty reveal that, oops, Liam has been dead this whole time. And Mm -hmm. that's like the warning sign to Aaron. Oh, shit, something's gone super wrong with my husband. Right. But we don't get any kind of, you know, oh, yeah, your stepdad lost someone super important to him, Kayla. And it was this boy that he watched get murdered in front of him. Mm -hmm. So don't mind those glasses. Yeah. I mean, he, he practically displays it like a museum piece. So he really does. But yeah. I mean, like, again, we, we don't like we don't really get a conversation between the two of them about this, except mm-hmm. when when the reveal comes later. And so that's that's kind of another thing where I'm like, I wish I would have like had a little bit more of that. Yeah, there, I think there's a couple moments missing in this relationship, like between the two men that mm-hmm. would have deepened the relationship just a touch more. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So that night, he wakes up to investigate a strange noise. It's the first time of many that this will happen in the film. And it's also a bit of a fake out because it turns out it's just the sound of tree branches tapping against the window. Your tried and true horror trope. But it's also a nice like, no, he's imagining things like this is where the film is going to get a lot of that tension from. Is it him or is it actually something malicious happening outside? And of course, it's it's good that it is actually malicious. Um, Thank God. It, yes. <laughs> it makes for one hell of a downer of an ending. But yep. it's also inherently more satisfying than just like, oh, it's the gay traumatized man and he's just nuts. Oh my God. Can you imagine? Oh, the I mean, the implication of that, I I, I don't even know what to think. <laughs> Let's just say many fewer stars on the old letterbox rating. (laughs) All right, so the next day we are introduced to a new character. This is Neighbor Tiffany, who is played by Chandra West. And this is arguably a very on the nose interaction, and yet so fucking real to me. So she swings by to welcome them to the neighborhood. And she, because Malik was out getting rid of that tree branch, she has mistaken him for the gardener. And then she exclaims that their homosexuality is exciting. Yes. You're like, um, Tiffany, you're a bitch. It's, I know it's so funny, right? Cause it's in this demeanor of like super peppy, like white suburban mm-hmm. mom. Oh God. Yeah. But, like, those are kind of the worst. <laughs> no offense to any oh. white suburban moms we have listening to us. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's more this, the fake camaraderie that she's bringing out, right? Like, it's not an actual I'm excited. It's like a Stepford I'm excited. What are we working with? Okay, you know what? I'm going to bring this question up now, then. Um, well, hey. Okay. So, obviously, she's like, that's exciting because it's like, okay, cool. So, you're going to um, be our next sacrifice. Yes. We are explained later that this happens every 10 years so they can keep living forever or whatever. Is it mm-hmm. just by happenstance that people who are part of minority groups keep moving into this same house every 10 years? No, I think they're being lured here. And 
you know, there's some supernatural stuff that happens throughout the film that doesn't really get explained. It's just kind of left open to your interpretation. Mm -hmm. But because the end of the film really situates Tiffany and Marshall and Tyler as like the ones who are keeping an eye on who's moving in and out of this house. I can't help but wonder if they lure people there with like a job prospect. Hey, Aaron, leave the city, come to this quiet residential town and make a fresh start. Okay. Well, I'm missing that scene in this movie. Yeah. It's not there, but it's, I think a a bit of an easy, it's an easy reach trace. Come on. Yeah. and, And you're totally right. But it's just one of those things where it's like, okay, well you can give me this like jump scares with this ghost girl, but like, you can't give me like that kind of explanation. I don't want to talk about the I know. I, they bothered me last time. They bothered me this time. It's not necessary. Yeah, like, it, it, it's just not great. Make him find the tapes in a different way. <laughs> yeah, I, we'll get there. Okay. So uh, I do love that they put on this deliberate display of affection in front of her just to like really suck it to her. And, uh, and wait, 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 okay, wait. So mm-hmm. for, for me, again, I know that I should be like, oh yeah, that's right. Y'all do that. But for me, I was like, oh my God, you're pushing so many buttons. Why would you do that? Like, yeah. <laughs> but that's me i mean like i'm coming this from a, a gay male perspective like it made me so uncomfortable for mm-hmm. everyone on this screen and that's a problem like it shouldn't make me uncomfortable it's because you see the danger right like and this mm-hmm. is one of those things that marginalized people have so much difficulty communicating to the mainstream right like i've had conversations with female friends where they have talked to me about their nighttime regiment like if they were working late and they had to get to a car or catch a bus and how they would walk with keys in their hands or like mace or like 9-1 ready on their cell phone in case they have to hit something because they're so used to being hit on by men by being followed and it's one of those things where people just don't understand what the lived reality of people is because they haven't lived it themselves and when you and I watch this and we see characters that we relate to and we think, why, why would you invite this on yourself? You are making it worse for yourself. This is scary. Don't stand out in this way, right? Because we're taught if you just try to blend in, maybe you won't get picked on. Yes. Th- this is actually, I- I'll use this to, to, to explain my issue with um, Chapman on my first viewing. And um, do it's, it. So, okay, first of all, yeah, the, the PDA, I'm actually, I've actually never been much for PDA, and I think it's a combination of me just, A, not liking it very much, but mixed with the fact that, like, I don't feel comfortable, really. And I live in a very liberal area of Texas, but, like, I still don't really feel comfortable. Like, I, my husband and I aren't hand holders. We aren't, like, put our arms around each other. Like, we don't, we don't kiss in public. And I think a lot of that, though, stems from both of us just growing up in a not liberal area of Texas and not ever feeling comfortable doing that. So... I had pinged to you before we watched this film that I actually didn't love uh, Chapman's performance in this film, that he kind of got on my nerves. And I couldn't figure out why, just from memory. So watching it last night, I was like, okay, what was it? And it was, I thought he was really, I didn't like his inflection. Like It was a lot of like, oh, baby, oh. like, And it was like, and when he starts crying because he's upset. And you're probably like, Trace, yeah, he's crying because he's, his life is falling apart. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think what I realized is that I was uncomfortable with these non-masculine elements being shown by this man. And sure. be- because I-, I was raised in a way that was like, no, men don't behave that way. And obviously that is wrong of me to think that. But it's like th- this thing that I have ingrained in my mind of like, oh, like if you see a man doing that, it's weak. 
And then, like, there was, a, like, a thing in the back of my mind where it's like, well, he deserves what's coming to him, which obviously I don't think that. But yeah. it, it, it's like, I, I was processing that yesterday, like, oh, my God, like, he's annoying me because I have this, like, idea of how a man should act, gay or straight, whoever, like, in my mind. And I was like, holy mm-hmm. fuck, like, how big of an asshole am I for thinking this? I debated to even bring this up because I was like, well, that's not going to make me look very good. But... Oh, I think it's super important. I think it's really important to bring up because it let me... A, at least I caught it. But yeah, it was something that I was like, oh, I can't believe I even thought that. And I was letting his performance of like showing vulnerability, of a man showing vulnerability, make me find this man's performance annoying. And that's Mm -hmm. really fucked up. Yeah, because it's basically a learned behavior. I mean, I remember when I came out, I was at university and I flew home to my parents for Christmas. And I, you know, it was a whole rigmarole of emotions. And it, as we talked about before, it ended up being very fine. And like, there was some fallout later on. But for the most part, it was okay. And I remember my mom and I ended up going shopping a couple of days after I came out and we were in the mall. And I saw one of those like fresh baby gays who is just like loudly proclaiming their sexuality with like every step, every inflection, every article of clothing on their body, like rainbow flag, lispy voice, bouncing around, just being so fucking gay. And my mom turned to me and said, well, I'm just so glad that you're not like that. And it's like, these, like, I know she didn't mean it that way. And I think she probably even, if I asked her, she would say she meant it from a place of love because she wouldn't want me to be picked on because, you know, that is the animal out on safari and the lions are going to circle because yeah. that is just so easy prey. But it's also fucking terrible, right? Like, how can we think that that is an okay reaction? Because that person's just out living their life. Like, Jeffrey Boyer Chapman is, he is the more effeminate of the two. That doesn't make him weaker. That doesn't make him bad or wrong. And yet we have been told by society that that kind of behavior is unacceptable and unmanly and unwelcome. And that's something that's not thought, obviously, just by non-queer people. It's something that still affects queer people. Like, that's where internalized homophobia comes from. And, like, that's definitely uh-huh. something uh-huh. that I still deal... I mean, again, I'm more secure with my sexuality now than I was when I was, you know, 14 years old. But, it, it, like, moments like this where I'm like, oh, there are still things clearly that I have to work through because I still have those thoughts sometimes. And yeah. They creep in the but- back of my mind like little poisons. This honestly feels like a variation of the discussion that we had at the top of this episode about mental health, right? Like we have to keep working on ourselves because like we've just got all of this stuff that has been put onto us or that we have internalized that we still have to like sort out for the rest of our fucking lives. Yeah. 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 Um, And good times. It's again, all about communication, being able to admit when you're wrong or when a way that a way of thinking that you subscribe to is wrong. But the problem Mm -hmm. is that a lot of people aren't comfortable doing that. And that's why I wanted to say that today, because I was like, well, I should might as well fucking do it. But yeah, okay. So sorry. um, (laughs) Serious. Well, the serious talks are not going to be done, but continue. (laughs) I mean, this is one of the reasons why I was really excited to talk about this film is because it's it opens up a lot of things that I think we need to be talking about. And that's why representation in cinema is important. <laughs> yes. <laughs> if you take away nothing except that from this episode, we have done our jobs. 
Okay, so, um, yeah, there's, like, this weird subplot where Malik is transcribing or, like, ghostwriting a book for a doctor named Dr. Darrelson, and he finds out over the course of the film that Dr. Darrelson is basically involved in gay conversion therapy, and it doesn't come to anything, but it's another creepy, insidious thing that you could easily read as contributing to Malik's quote-unquote deteriorating mind see and I, I kind of took it more as like just like look at what us queer folk are subjected to every day like obviously this is a really extreme uh, example because yeah. he's literally ghostwriting for this awful human being right but it's also like yeah like you know straight people can say or not non-queer people can say like oh y- y'all have it good now it's like okay but like you you don't see like you don't live our lives like you don't know what we have to go through what we have to see every day so well like you may be acting fine ish i guess around us like that doesn't always happen and that's not something that happens every day um Mm -hmm. a lot of queer folk in this world i would be hard pressed to say can go one day without feeling like a homophobic like look or hear something homophobic towards them at least once a day yep yep And in this particular case, it's very literal because he goes for a run and comes back and finds the F word painted on his wall inside, I might add. I was really confused about this. I mean, it's only because we see in the in the tapes in the past that the previous tenants had the word dykes spray painted on their wall. Is that part Mm -hmm. of the ritual? Yes. Oh, just to like what what part of the ritual is that? (laughs) So I took it and I can't remember the film, but remember how there was like. I feel like we talked about a film recently that it was like there were steps that you had to take to kind of like prepare people for the final initiation. And it was all to do with like getting them scared and capitalizing on that. And I would agree with that if Malik wasn't the only one that saw it when it's more so the daughter that they're trying to get. Yeah, I wonder I if the daughter was just like easy prey because she's young and she's got that new bio flesh that they want to consume. Right. I mean, well, but, but either way, though, the daughter didn't see it. So like, if, if whatever it it's it's not. Well, an but issue. maybe she would have. It's just like they probably didn't expect that he would just immediately paint it over before anybody comes home. <laughs> right. Which is true. But then if it's a necessary part of the ritual, it didn't happen to her. So it's still but they still completed the ritual. <laughs> <laughs> eh, logistics. Yeah, it's it's. How much do you want to know about this? Like a dumb ritual. I mean, I will give the movie that it doesn't give you this whole like this is how it all works thing. It's like cool. There's a ritual. They pull her heart out and they live longer. Like okay, yeah. <laughs> okay, so um, that night, Mr. Reinhardt observes him again. The next day, Malik notices that in addition to the F word being painted on the wall, the drag photo yeah. of him and Aaron is missing. So he gets a security system installed. And this is his first phone call to Liam that he makes covertly in the garage. So his, yeah, his meds are switched out like from the get go. Either from the get go or like he is in so much mental stress. Yes. Thank you. He is going through so much mental stress that it has like aggravated his symptoms to such a degree. But I, I would gather that while they were in there spray painting the F word and stealing the photo, they probably swapped out the meds. Yeah, that makes sense. Again, it's like, do we need to see it? I don't know, but it might have helped to clarify a little bit. So they go to a welcome mixer. It's outside because Canada and, uh, (laughs) Here is where Tiffany introduces her husband, Marshall, as you mentioned, played by Lachlan Monroe. And the minute you see this guy, you just want to punch him in the face because Lachlan Monroe is always bad news. Random factoid, though. So, I mean, I know him from, like, Scary Movie and, like, Riverdale and White Chicks. Mm -hmm. He has 245 acting credits to his name. 
Oh, yeah. I think he was the guy, he was the roommate who dies by suicide, or they try to get him to die by suicide in Dead Man on Campus with Tom Everett Scott, wasn't he? Maybe? I didn't see that movie. Maybe. You're like, uh, I don't know. That movie's from the 90s. But I mean, like, I say that as, okay, like, like, his multiple, like, his 36 episodes in Riverdale are, like, one acting credit. So it's like, mm-hmm. he's had, he's been in 245 different things. <laughs> I was well, just yeah, like, been in you don't game. see that shit anymore. <laughs> Yeah, unless you're, you know, looking at people who are maybe like in Asian cinema and they've just got a million credits to their name. Or or, or Danny Trejo. Too. Or Danny Trejo, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, to be a person with like 260 credits on your IMDb. Hey, making good money at least. But yes, um, he, he yeah, is yeah. a creepo from the beginning. It's yeah. um, not as over the top as Tiffany's, but... And it's always, it, I, it, it is kind of like this critique on white suburbia where it's like, there's just something a little Stepford-y about them. And I like it. Yeah. I mean, I like it like for the film. I don't like them. No, of course not. No, she's, you know, she might as well be carrying around pumpkin spice lattes all the time in this movie. And he might be, he might as well be like driving a fast car and talking to you about stocks because they are cliches, but of an appropriate kind. And I, I agree with you. I like that they're underplayed a little bit. Mm-hmm. So Malik sees uh, Mr. Reinhardt, the neighbor, who has been watching their house, and he ends up confronting him that night because he sees him fucking outside again. And at this point, Reinhardt kind of cracks and he begs him to take this piece of paper and not to tell anyone. And then he runs off and it's all very mysterious. And then you're like, well, you're going to get killed in the next scene. Yeah, which is more or less exactly what happens. So I did want to point out that, that when Aaron's obviously pissed when this happens, like you spent thousands of dollars on this you know alarm system he does this thing though where he's like you know what people do in the suburbs they leave their doors unlocked and he unlocks the door okay if this was 1975 i would believe that but i did (laughs) grow up in the suburbs in the 90s and we did not leave our doors unlocked I mean, I think it depends on the size of the town. My ex-girlfriend from university, she grew up in a very small Ontario town, and they 100% left their doors open. I think... Oh, that's so terrible. Um, I, I think know. there's also something where your racial politics come into play, though, because it's, again, your privileged white guy that's like, no one would come after us. I know. And I'm just like, you have two strikes against you. <laughs> you are a gay yeah. couple and an interracial couple <laughs> in the 90s, sir. <laughs> Odds are, like, someone's not going to be happy about one of those things. Yeah, like, you're just lucky that you didn't also get the racial shit thrown at you that you just had, like, people willing to trade on your homophobia so that they could murder your daughter. That is, because, like, Malik never tells him about the F word being spray painted on their wall. Never. And I'm like, just tell him! (laughs) So Uh, frustrating. they're still play acting a lot in this early part. And I really got the impression that Malik just wants to make it work. Like I do yeah. not get the impression he wanted to move to the country. I think he's okay with it because he can work remotely. But this to me always screams like this is Aaron's idea. And he thinks it's going to be good for Kayla. And you're like, Malik's just trailing behind them. Yeah. Okay, so Malik tries to decipher this note, but it's blank. Meanwhile, we get the introduction of Tyler, who is played by Ty Wood. That is Tiffany and Marshall's son, although we don't find out about that until a little bit later. He's just like the hot guy that she's hanging around with. Yeah. And then everything comes to a head when that night Malik sees that there's some really weird fucking looking ritual that's happening in the Reinhardt house. And then he takes a picture, which I was like, what the fuck are you idiot. doing? Such a fucking idiot. Like, I was literally like that. You, <laughs> the thing people do in scary movies and everyone hates them for it. This is it. 
<laughs> Important to acknowledge that we do not have digital cameras at this time. So if you wanted to take a picture, it would have had to have been with a flash. But it's also like, what are you doing? And also, I think logistically, he would have gotten a picture of himself in the reflection of the glass. I, maybe. I mean, again, I wasn't there for shooting. Maybe, but yes, <laughs> I, I, I would believe that. Yeah, uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's just dumb. one. I mean, not that it. It doesn't make it worse or make it better. Yeah. Like, him not doing that wouldn't have stopped the ritual from happening. But nope. still, it's just like, ugh. Yeah, it, but at this early stage, you're thinking, oh, maybe they wouldn't have. But you just cast attention onto yourself. Yeah. Okay, so the next day it's revealed Reinhardt is dead. He's carried out on a stretcher. And it's funny because Marshall just immediately tries to do damage control. So he explains that this ceremony was a celebration of life and like you shouldn't overthink it. So again, we've got the film trying to get us to decide which one do we want to believe. Is it Malik's going cuckoo or is it that there's something dangerous going on yeah and malik does not buy that shit so he <laughs> sneaks into the house he's almost discovered by reinhardt's grandson matthew who is played by thomas elms aka twinkie mctwinkerson yeah i would have preferred that we didn't have so many people with t names i'm not gonna lie doing this and being like which one's tyler and which one is matthew and which one is tiffany <laughs> yeah oh yeah good point <laughs> um uh Okay, so this is the part where the friction between the couple starts to come up. So they've got like a little sit down kind of drinks with Tiffany and Marshall. And Malik says he really doesn't want to go because he doesn't like them. And Aaron does that. Oh, why are you always doing this? You always have to like suck the fun out of things. <sighs> like this to me, I've had this conversation probably 500 times no i mean I, i've experienced it too and I, i've been on both sides of it and it's really frustrating on both sides of it um mm -hmm. it's also just one of those things where it's like dude you're married to someone who is suffering from ptsd like i'm sorry yeah, like that maybe he's throw not, him a bone like he's not always gonna feel up to go to going to a fucking dinner party <laughs> yeah and sometimes that just means okay you push a little bit harder but also it's like when someone is telling you something, like, for God's sake, just try to listen to them. <laughs> like, but I don't view any of this as unrealistic. I view both, oh no, like, no. I view Aaron's actions as as something that actually does happen, especially in the 90s mm -hmm. when, like, mental illness, I, there's still stigma around it, but when it was definitely more stigmatized back in, like, 25 years ago. Absolutely. So this is where we start to get some really... I don't want to say great, but this is where we get some really specific language about the queer experience. Yeah. So I do love Malik's line, what's a word for an Uncle Tom, but for gay people? Because that's like the perfect synthesis of like racial and queer politics in mm -hmm. one kind of cutting line. <laughs> but then when they actually do go for these drinks, this is where we get to hear them acknowledge the fact that it was difficult for them to be gay parents to Kayla so they were told they weren't fit to parent her that they were at high risk and I love that the movie doesn't spell it out but but okay but that is like HIV right oh yeah absolutely okay cool I just wanted to make sure I was like I think that's what it means. <laughs> <laughs> high risk for winning the lottery no I mean and, and that, that's something that too like I mean like I I can see straight people being like oh what is high risk for what for like mm -hmm. being fabulous oh it it takes Tiffany and Marshall like a hot probably five seconds to be like oh see and like hey because you know i don't like admitting that i'm stupid like, i don't like looking stupid so like if i really didn't know i would have been like oh yeah like that's terrible but like because context clues but like i wouldn't i would not have asked what that meant 
Fair enough. Baby steps. We're we're getting you there. Um, no, yeah, uh, and well, and to be, I mean, I, I, we don't have to talk about the stigma around HIV a lot, but too much. But like, I mean, even in the queer community, like the stigma around HIV positive. I mean, people around HIV is terrible because, I mean, we're at a point now where if, you know, you can be undetectable, which equals untransmittable, but you still have guys that are that are positive and like getting blocked and rejected by guys because they're afraid of the disease. They don't want to catch it. And it's like, that's not really, it's hard to contract HIV now if everyone's doing their part. And well, I mean, hypothetically, back in the day, the same could have been true. It's just that people weren't always doing their part and people were misinformed. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, th- th- that, that, like, I mean, I understand, like, someone saying, oh, they're high risk, like, back in 1995, because it's just fucking ignorance from, you know, yeah. Every, yeah. I, I, I kind of go with more today where, like, I'm now, like, going into, like, oh, with queer folk who are, like, you know, oh, sure. they don't understand yeah, yeah. HIV I, I, like they should. And that's why sex education is important, everyone. There's prep, mm-hmm. there's undetectable equals untransmittable, and there are condoms. Like, and you, you, you can do any combination of the things and you're probably good. Yeah. And if you want to learn more, go to a Planned Parenthood. Oh, wait. Ugh. It's really hard to get to one in a lot of places. Yeah, sexual health is not important. Uh, okay. Sorry, we're not going down that road. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Yeah, okay. So Malik finds a strange book in Marshall's office. He also sees an old-timey photograph, which, of course, is not Marshall, but totally is Marshall. I do like, though, that um, so the spiral of the title, which uh, it, it, it's just... That's the only time we see it, right? Or is it painted on the wall somewhere? It's painted on the wall later. Yeah. Okay. But I do love that we never, like... They never say the word spiral. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> Can you imagine? This is our spiral ritual. Oh, didn't you know? We're called the Spiral Cult <laughs> because we have a spiral logo. Yes. Oh, God. We had it professionally like designed at, you know, the the copy place down the street. <laughs> Jim gave us a good discount. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So we've got Matthew swinging by to ask if his grandfather gave Malik anything. And this moment i loved because i thought i had missed something there's a point where matthew switches positions he goes from a chair oh, to yeah. next to malik on the, the couch cam- it, it, and it's a it's so good <laughs> you know because it, it, it's it's a camera pan like it cuts to i mean it's not one take but basically it's a shot reverse shot and it cuts to malik and then it pans over he's all of a sudden on the side yeah it, it's a really <laughs> effective and chilling sequence that being said, Matthew is not being discreet. Like, he's like, oh, my God, this is so sad. By the way, did my grandpa give you anything? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And then when that doesn't work, because Malik's not an idiot, and he says, no, no, nothing. That's when he pretends to be super upset, and he makes a move on Malik. And, of course, this is when Aaron comes in. Yep. And I do, and again, this is another thing. So it looks weird, but then we get the moment right away later where Aaron's like, well, you clearly like him. Did you want to invite him in? It's been a while since we played with someone. That polyamory that isn't really common, at least publicly, I feel like, in a lot of straight relationships, that is somewhat more common in queer relationships, or at least, like, mm-hmm. the acknowledgement of it. Like, yeah, I really appreciated that. And, you know, you can have your thoughts on polyamory or whatever, but, like, it was just, like, that felt very organic and real to me in a way that, like, you know, you just don't see very often in mainstream. Well, this isn't mainstream cinema, but just whatever. <laughs> yeah, it and it's such a, a short little quick moment. Like, 
you hear them talking about it, and then we're moving on to the next scene because Kayla's got blood dripping from her ceiling because a whole bunch of animal corpses were left above her bed because, of course, she's going to be sacrificed by a cult later. Yep, and, you know, yep, yep, they just put them in. She gets bathed in blood, so there you go. Good thing we're not locking our doors because nobody's getting into this house to do anything (laughs) nefarious. (laughs) Fucking Aaron. Uh, (laughs) That's so stupid. So that night we get a group of cultists who are now standing on the lawn. So we're just, we're seeing more and more people congregating, which helps to nicely escalate the threat, right? Like one person standing outside of a house is unnerving. A group of people is fucking terrifying. Mm -hmm. Oh, um, I don't know if this is before or after this, but there's a part, and I just want to comment on it, where Mm -hmm. Malik is in the shower for like an hour. And I wrote in my notes, does this big ass house only have one bathroom? (laughs) <laughs> maybe yeah it looks like a proper farm doesn't yeah it does it? it's a it's, it's not a small huge. house <laughs> no the inside does not always match the outside i don't know if they were shooting in that actual building but yeah it looks quite a bit smaller on the inside mm-hmm. so there's actually two shower scenes there's one where it's like we get the spiral of the water down the drain and then that mm. transitions to like this trippy you know spiral of matthew standing outside and then we also get the scene you just mentioned which is where he's having malik is having a a sexy conversation with aaron in the shower to which i was gonna say this is the only like male nudity that we get in this movie Mm. and that is unacceptable to me (laughs) i would agree with that although i would argue that maybe because it's not well no that's stupid because there's plenty of horror movies with plenty of female nudity like i I would say it's like it's a very serious horror film like it's not like a quote-unquote fun horror film so like i don't need the nudity but there have been plenty of serious horror films with nudity (laughs) i mean i don't need it to be clear no i know it's more that i was like oh shower scene like give me a little bit of well jbc but it's it's because uh, aaron's not really there yeah that's the problem so (laughs) this is another deflection where you realize later it's of course because of the meds but um Mm -hmm. at this point we we think okay there's something definitely wrong with malik like he's losing time he doesn't really understand what's going on but all of that time in the shower has allowed him to figure out how to decode Reinhardt's paper. So he uses some water, gets a bunch of numbers, and we are off on a motherfucking library microfiche search. And I was living for it. Okay, I will say, so you're going to think I'm referencing Knives Out, but I'm not. I was, when he when he handed in the blank paper, I was like, oh my god, fucking light it on fire. It's going to show up. Because there is a Scooby-Doo episode where it's, it's a Jeepers, god. it's the Creeper. And there's a part where, like, uh, they, they have this blank photograph and the monster who's called the Creeper keeps chasing them around. And mm-hmm. basically when they, they the guy that gave in the paper goes, the flame will tell the Creeper. And it's apparently because in the 70s, like, whenever this episode came out, like, the security camera, like, takes a photo, but you can only see the photo by lighting a flame under the photograph. <laughs> So whenever I see a blank thing, I'm like, light a flame under it! The flame will tell the creeper! Oh, God. Yeah, I mean, I love all the spy shit. The idea of, you know, I've seen movies where people have to use lemon juice to reveal, or it's black light. Like, God damn, I want someone to pass me a note and just tell me, like, you're going to have to figure out how to read this, and I'm going to have to try all of those techniques. Mm-hmm. I want that in my life so badly. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I'm sorry. Back to your microfiche sequence. Um, yeah, I do appreciate mm-hmm. that. It's real fun. Um, it's it's so much more refreshing to see that than a Google search, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, especially when they can't afford Google, so it ends up being like search. a thing chum. <laughs> You know, Jim got me a really good deal on a high-speed internet connection on Bing Chum Search. <laughs> Are you trying to do a southern accent? 
I don't know what I'm doing. It's fine. It's mostly right. <laughs> sure. So this microfiche reveals that 10 years before there was a murder-suicide of a lesbian couple who, of course, was living in their house. Yeah, Realtor didn't mention that shit. Yeah, which I think you're meant to disclose. Are you? Not? I think you're supposed to as well. <laughs> Maybe they weren't really banking on them going to the library. This is true. That's why they wanted that paper. (laughs) (laughs) Which really, like, the paper just reveals all the years that they've been doing this, right? Oh, 100%. (laughs) It's like, why don't you just say, like, here's the date of the newspaper and you can figure it out from there? Mm -hmm. God damn it, Reinhardt. So we get another phone call to Liam, and this is where we discover the large spiral that has been painted on the garage door. And I think this is around the time, too, where Aaron says the line, you need to stop thinking that everyone's trying to get you all the time. I thought we were past this. And I'm like, dude, (laughs) it's so frustrating. (laughs) Why did you marry this man? Uh, Or I I guess, why did you partner with this man? Yeah, I I mean... I think the film does a really good job of clarifying that these are strenuous circumstances and they don't normally act this way. But I do like that we get a taste of what the happy part of their relationship looks like at the beginning of the film so that we can appreciate how much they've fallen apart in these later parts. And that's what I meant by the normalizing at the beginning of the episode is like, we have seen this happen to a million straight couples in different horror films. And I kind of like that. It's like, yeah, these these guys don't have a great relationship when the shit hits the fan. Yeah, that's true. I mean, yeah, I guess they may have had problems in the past, but they probably never had this specific thing happen to them in the past. Oh, you don't you don't think this you don't think they've dealt with the spiral cult? The spiral cult. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. So this obviously freaks out Malik, and he ends up. I mean, he he does some more like Google searching at home on his 1994 computer, mm-hmm. and he figures out where the lesbian couple's house is. It's actually a house he's run by on his runs. So he goes there. He sees. Wait, I thought the lesbian couple's house was their house. Oh, no. Okay, sorry. No, that is not right. Because the lesbian couple's house is the little house that he goes to. Oh, oh, fuck. I'm going to delete that thing earlier then about, like, the minority couple always moving into the same house. (laughs) Well, I think it's safe to say that they move to the same town because of the same reasons. Oh, you know what, though? Wait, scratch that. Because the Middle Eastern couple does move into their house. It does. (laughs) At the end of the movie. Yes. (laughs) Yes, yeah, so yeah, no, they, he goes to the lesbian's house, and this is where we get the ghost girl, and I do yeah. not need this in this movie at all. Absolutely not, unless you want to talk about the fact that this is, like, the ghost of queer trauma haunting a home, and, you know... But it's the daughter, like right? A, I, I think it's the I, dead daughter. Okay, I... I mean, I, you know what? Now that you're saying it, it makes sense. I did not get that at the time. No, I mean, because I, I, th- there's a part later where it like really focuses on the on the picture of the girl, or maybe it's in the videotape where it's like on her face. But yeah, I mean, it's literally she's only there to provide. I, I think she even has a handful of tapes. <laughs> when he turns oh, yeah, she around. gives him the tapes. She's like, here, Ugh. take these tapes home with you. Watch them. They will provide you with clues. You're like, or he could have just found them in a pile. 
I mean, luckily we don't get like the ghost girl like saves the day, a la the remake of House of Haunted Hill when Chris Kattan comes back to save the day. Oh, Jesus God, yeah. But it, yeah, th- this ghost serves no fucking purpose. No, even even if it had been something more like she points him to a trap door that he would have otherwise not discovered, because like, what has this bitch just been walking around for ten years holding on to a handful of tapes? Like, come on, come I just, on. I think about the scary movie too when uh, the ghosts are telling Anna Ferris like. The music room, Cindy. The music room. Where are? What? Where are you? Check the fucking music room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> Look Why at the fucking the tapes. Always... <laughs> Why are the ghosts always so vague in their descriptions? Just watch the fucking tapes. <laughs> <laughs> what lies beneath? You know. No, bitch. What do I know? <laughs> yeah, like my body in car off pier. Your husband <laughs> killed me. <laughs> Yes, ghosts, be more communicative. And also, do cursive. You know, you've ha- you've got all that time now that you're dead. Like, work on your work on your penmanship. Ugh. All these ghosts with their fucking blocky letters. Anyway, yeah. anyway. Okay, so this is when he, he's like, yay, I've got videotapes that I can watch. I'm going to crack this case wide open. And then he comes home and Aaron's like, hey, I've got Polaroids of you having sex with an underage boy. Yeah. Um, which, okay, so do we think that this is real? Like he was like drugged or something and it actually happened? Or is it like they have their magic powers and they just like made it, like created the photos? I definitely thought the latter, but now that I'm hearing you say it out loud, it definitely seems more likely that they got him during one of his blackout periods. Because if, I didn't pause, but it definitely looks like Malik is out of it in the pictures. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, like so he looks like he's I wouldn't have been up. surprised. Yeah, he's probably just passed out somewhere, and Matthew's like, I'm just going to stage these photos. <laughs> la, 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 la. This is the scene that I was referencing earlier when he started crying, and he was like, No, stop! And I, I was like, Again, my first viewing, I was like, Well, that's really whiny and annoying. And then on my, sec- my viewing last night, I was like, Oh, right. It would make sense for him to react that way. <laughs> and it's okay for a man to cry and be vulnerable. Uh, yes, the, the dissolution of a marriage and lies and crying yeah that god you were broken inside <laughs> be a man uh no i always like well no I'm, I'm, i always I, I never cry in real life things it takes a lot for me to cry in real life i always cry in movies um i did not cry in this one but that's on me yeah i don't think that this movie elicits tears because no. it's not particularly sad it's sad in that like soul crushing defeatist kind of way yeah and we'll we'll, we'll get that in a minute we'll about 20 that. minutes we'll actually Okay, so um, Malik's computer has also been destroyed, but he does manage to save a disc out of it. And then at that point, he gets a phone call from the police that Kayla has gotten into trouble because she beat up some girl who was telling lies about her to Tyler. Uh, and Well, no, no. She was telling Tyler that uh, Kayla was going to give her AIDS. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's a bit of an extension of our HIV discussion from earlier, but that is, again, yeah. not uncommon not even today, but especially in the 90s. Yeah, for sure. And I, I really like the relationship between Malik and Kayla in this film because I think, mm-hmm. I mean, in a way, he's trying to be the kind of cool stepdad where he's more relatable and he's not an authoritarian. And that makes sense. But I also get the impression that she, you know, when they talk about the difficulties that they faced when 
uh, they took custody. Well, he, he's basically like the fu- he's the fun dad, you know. He's the one that's supposed to be there, and like he's younger. He's he's probably can connect with her more because I, I, we haven't really discussed, but there is an age difference between Aaron and Malik. Yes, hence the money discrepancy as well. Right. I do like that we get the kind of like don't I, I was wrong. Don't speak out. Don't speak up. It's not safe because like we have the line earlier where it's like the bravest thing anyone can do is live loud and proud, and that is true. And you know the yeah. the queer community wouldn't be where we are today if not for people that did live loud and proud and stand out but the fact of the matter is that it's not possible for everyone and no one should be judged for not wanting to do that because honestly there's always a question of safety when that comes into play yeah well and particularly at this moment right like his entire life is falling apart right and he doesn't know what's going on and you can only imagine that he thinks that it has everything to do with the fact that they are a queer couple living in this small town that they have been targeted which is yeah true <laughs> and yeah, just not for the reasons he thinks. <laughs> I was say, it's it's not because they're gay though, but it, I mean it is because they're gay because it's no one's going to care, but yeah. it's not like they're not like anti-gay. <laughs> that that's the that's the weird like like thing in this movie. It's like yeah, they're targeting minorities, but like they they're not they're not anti the minority, I feel like. I don't no. know. No, no, because they they need them. They see the value in them for murder purposes. <laughs> yes, and exactly. living forever purposes. <laughs> Uh, it's a different kind of discrimination. Right? <laughs> yeah. So he winds up going to Marshall. Marshall magically has a backup of the hard drive. And I say magically because Marshall was probably the one responsible for it in the first place. Well, he's place. like, I found the folder. I found the folder, Malik. And I'm guessing it's the folder that's like on all the cult shit that he's been doing. Yeah. Yeah. Which he's like, okay, well, now I've got to break this up. But of course, that's why Malik grabbed the disc. Yay, because he managed to burn all of that evidence already. Because back in the yep. day, that's what you would do, kids. You would burn it onto a CD-ROM. <laughs> there was no Google Drive. <laughs> Let's move it on. Okay. Okay. So while Malik is there, he also manages to steal said spiral book from Marshall's office. I love that Marshall is just letting him hang out in his office where he has a book with all of the evidence in it. Ah. this guy. I think Marshall knows. I think at this point, he's like, dude, we've already got you. Like, we, the plan's oh, yeah. in motion. Yeah. Like... You can take it. No one's going to fucking believe you. Mm-hmm. We do get another moment, too, of, like, Marshall talking to him, and then, like, the camera pans, and he's all of a sudden sitting in a chair in the other room. It's good. I like that. It's such a subtle effect, and yet it's really good. Like, yeah, it's effective. I, I, it's very effective. As opposed to the next ghost girl scare we're going to get soon. Oh, my God. Okay, so Malik checks into a hotel because he can't go home, and this is where he watched the he watches the video. He finds out that a queer couple is selected every 10 years so it's basically just confirmation of what we already knew he finds out that his pills have been switched and we get another ghost girl with a gun sequence where he almost shoots some girl well okay so first of all it was a queer couple last time now granted like if we're we're going back to like the 30s and 40s it probably could be like a black couple you know it's like it's whatever society is afraid of now the, the reason that this ghost girl scare bothers me the most out of any of them in the film is because we get this really good effect of him envisioning like a demon on the other side of the window. Mm-hmm. And it's it looks really cool. It has that demon voice and it sounds really cool. I don't need him to turn around and have a ghost girl running at him. <laughs> Why would you like undercut that great moment beforehand, which was super dread inducing and like creepy as fuck with this yeah particularly because none of the ghost girl stuff like it's clearly meant to be for jump scares but it's not effective like it's not a good jump scare at all it's not a movie built around jump scares like let's say they were really good jump scares and like you know we have like three of them in the movie okay sure it's fine 
but it, they're not good. And as we've already mm-hmm. established, like the ghost girl isn't needed to like advance the plot as long as he finds yeah. the tapes in some shape or way or form. It almost feels like a holdover from an earlier draft where we were going to have something more specific with this ghost girl either being you know she was going to assist in the discovery of more of this stuff or she would save the day or i don't know maybe he digs up some bodies or some shit but this feels like something where anyone needed to look at the script and say i don't think you need that extra little bit of weird supernatural (laughs) malice in here it's not doing you any good too true yeah So at this point, Malik has realized that Kayla is in pretty significant danger. So he has a very blurry and disjointed driving sequence where he returns home. I didn't love the way that this was shot, but this is, it's very much like my pills are switched and also I'm super ramped up and it's raining and whatever. whatever. Yeah, I mean, it's because, well, because it was like, okay, so he's mixing whatever pills they switched it out with with whatever booze he was drinking. And Mm -hmm. I get that it's like, cool, I'm fine to drive, like whatever, I'm going to go there. But yeah, I agree that that, the visual effect of like portraying intoxication, um, it was, it was fine. It was there. (laughs) (laughs) It is a thing. It's important for us to know that he is fucked up because of course, when he gets home, he discovers that it is Kayla's sweet 16. Oops. (laughs) And he is messed up. So he sees everybody. And he's been gone for a week. Oh, I didn't realize that. Okay. I missed that part. Because I think he thinks it's been like a day or two. And basically like uh, Aaron goes, where have you been? And he's like, what? I just talked to you yesterday or something. And he goes, it's been a week. Oh, I missed that part. Mm-hmm. AKA, I needed subtitles, and <laughs> when we get screeners, they don't provide subtitles, <laughs> and it really fucking pissed me off. Anyway, so everybody's there, and everybody's acting very hunky-dory. Everybody's super excited to see him, mm-hmm. including Marshall, whom he shoots to death. <laughs> Which is a really good moment in this movie, because you don't think it's going to happen, and that it does happen is really cool. Yeah, or even that you think he's hallucinating the whole thing. Oh, and yeah. That it's going to cut back and be like, hey, what are you doing? And, you know, maybe he doesn't even have a gun. But no, it's like, he's got a gun and he fully shot this guy to death. I do love, though, that I guess the entire town has this, like, agreement. Like, hey, by the way, if anyone gets shot, just pretend like it's real. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure they have, like, in their could... little spiral book, they have a contingency plan for all these kind of scenarios. Yeah, right. <laughs> Turn to Appendix D for the event. <laughs> <laughs> yes, 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 yes. I mean, I very much got the impression that everyone in town is in on this plot. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, like, I mean, we see a bunch of coldest. I mean, we don't know how small the town is, but, like, there's yeah. enough people there to be like, okay, I mean, like, I bet you everyone at this party is a cultist. Oh, 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and they've all read Appendix D, for sure. (laughs) All right, so because he has shot and murdered someone, Malik goes to jail. (laughs) And this is when Aaron visits him. And I I was okay with Aaron for a lot of this movie. But when he comes in and he basically says, oh, yeah, Kayla and I are going to go back to the city. I was like, you fucking asshole. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's a really hard conversation to watch. Again, that's where it's like, okay, I would maybe buy this if we we could just see other instances of when, like, I mean, obviously not this has happened before, but like, like, this is obviously a big deal. He walks in and he kills him, uh, supposedly kills a man. But like, Mm -hmm. it's still like the man that you're 
I mean, not married to, because it's not legal yet, but, like, his, it's his husband, basically. Yeah. And, yeah, I, I, I didn't fully buy that it would be this easy for him to leave him. And also, you don't even really need that to happen, because the next scene is the, is the end. Like, you don't even need to say, oh, we're, we're leaving you forever and we're going home. Like, you don't need that. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't raise the stakes any more than they've already been raised. Except this is the point where we find out that Liam is actually dead. Right. Right. So we do. And I, I honestly think that that's the only reason that the scene is in here is because you can't just have Malik suddenly be in jail and not have that closure but also i think it pays it off more if you get the sense that malik feels like he's been abandoned only to find out oh actually we're also murdering your husband and stepdaughter as we talk right now i I think it's meant to drive the knife in a little bit more but i agree with you that it would work all the more effectively if we if he had a reference you know like this is the fifth time that you've killed somebody (laughs) (laughs) Look, this is the fifth time you've murdered somebody, and I can't stand by you guys. I mean, I, I do think that we it's like a, maybe we, this is like the fourth time you've gone off your meds or something. Yeah, we do need a final scene between Aaron and Malik. I just, yeah, I don't love the whole "I'm abandoning you," like we're done, mm-hmm. this is over. I just wish there was a different, there was a different context here. But doesn't it make you feel like, ooh, Aaron? I hope you get what's coming to you. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> let, let let let's go to this last scene. I mean, well, so this is also, I think, when we we get the final full flashback to like finish off the gay bashing scene that started the film, which is we get the action fine. that intercuts then between the two. So Marshall is revealed to still be alive. He comes to visit Malik so he can do his villain speechify thing, and which this is basically again, though, where. It, it, but it's not super expository. It's just like, well, I'm sorry. It's not like, this is what we... Well, no, he does do that. It is a little bit. <laughs> but it's, it's not just, like... It's not bad. It it plays relatively well. It's not like five minutes or anything. Right. I, again, like I said earlier, I do think the whole, like, when the tides change, they'll we'll switch to someone else who people are more afraid of. Like, um, I don't... I, again, it's a little bit on the nose. I get the intention. I get it. I just don't think it needed to be that explicit. Um, mm-hmm. Particularly but, with the the final scene, right? Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah, exactly. Like, with the final scene, it's like, hey, cool. Like, that would have gotten your point across. So... And, and the movie's done such a pretty good job of not over-explaining things already, so that it chooses to do so here is a bit odd. Yeah. It's disappointing that the movie itself goes to Appendix D. Okay, so we get this. This is happening in the jail. And meanwhile, we're also cutting back to the events at the house. And this is where Aaron realizes that something is horribly wrong. The house is being infiltrated by cultists. Okay, wait, 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 wait. wait. The the way this plays out, though. So he watches the tape and he sees that, like, the lesbian couple and then their daughter was, like, having designs with Ty, who is not a day older than he is now, 10 years ago. Yeah. This is the shot, though, that creep the fuck out of him. So basically he realizes what happens and it cuts back and it it's a it's a long shot of him standing in front of this huge ass window and all the cultists mm-hmm. are standing behind him behind the window. Yeah. So good. It is and he chilling. and he doesn't notice, which is like all the better because he never really panics because he doesn't realize how much danger he's in. Yeah. And it's satisfying because yeah, he's kind of a prick. I do wish we had gotten to have a moment of, like, him with, or, like, Malik. I mean, again, there's no way Malik's going to get there. But, like, with him being like, oh, Malik, you were right. <laughs> but I guess him seeing his tie eat his daughter's heart is good enough. Yeah, because that's what he discovers when he goes upstairs. That And 
This is a grisly shot. I, mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I don't think the prosthetics are like 100% on point because her body looks wider, like where they put. Yeah. But you know, like small quibbles because the image of Ty just like chomping down like mm-hmm. it's a fucking burger on this girl's. Is it her heart or is it like her innards? Because like I... her chest is hollowed out yeah I, he definitely um it didn't seem like he'd done this before because she is uh yeah wide open um mm-hmm. it's i i will say that i was not expecting this visual in this yeah. film like no it, it, i mean it's a dark film but it's not like something where you're like oh you're gonna walk in and the 17 year old girl's chest is gonna be hollow. also like yeah mm-hmm. the image of him just n- chewing on it, it it's there's the sound effect and it just it is a really upsetting image like and i think also this is something that bothered me the first time because i was so upset by what i had just seen that i couldn't like even put it in like a oh that was really effective mm-hmm. because i was just so upset by what i had just seen <laughs> and it's partially i think because when we talk about cults often what we end up seeing is like you get a little ritualistic slitting of the throat or like a ceremonial dagger going into a heart or something like that like you don't typically see people digging into somebody else's body and just eating it it's so visceral and, and his nasty. reaction is like you know the oh, oh it's a very upsetting reaction even as despicable mm-hmm. as this character has kind of been like you feel bad for him and then you get this fucking coda on it with tiffany walking up like putting her arm around him and going isn't it beautiful mm-hmm. oh yeah. <laughs> <A> mother's love <laughs> uh yeah, yeah it, and then <sighs> just in case this wasn't upsetting enough for you because we're we're cutting back and forth between these we also get confirmation that malik and Aaron will be set up as a murder-suicide, just like the lesbians were 10 years before. So you're like, oh, okay, well, we're going to now go into the climax where, like, Malik breaks out, or Aaron fights back, or something happens. No. And no. The movie's over. (laughs) The movie is done. What Marshall just described is presumably what happens. So, like, these characters that we spent the 85 minutes with up to this point, they are all dead. They have been sacrificed to the spiral cult. Yeah. And uh, the movie could end there. Oh. Uh, hmm. Well, okay. I'm a Would it be minds. more satisfying or less satisfying? I don't know. I mean, I like the implication because obviously it flashes forward 10 years. I don't really know if I love the voiceover um, of Malik, um, mm. but I love it. It's, it's 20, 2005. It's four years after 9-11. So, of course, now it's a Middle Eastern couple moving to the town because, obviously, like, Americans are terrified of everything Middle Eastern, which sucks, but that is the mindset of the country. I'm honestly surprised that they didn't do, like, a 1992-2002. Right. Yeah. I think it could have ended just with them driving in and waving to Tiffany and Marshall. I didn't really need her, like, going up to the attic and finding the CD. Yeah, but, I mean, if you're telling this queer horror story and it's all about realizing that this this couple this family was doomed from the very beginning that's a pretty dark fatalistic way to end your film so the fact that like the last line is malik saying just remember hope is never silent at least i think makes it a little bit more palatable like yeah we just murdered this queer couple and their daughter but maybe this new family will have better luck. That is the point of the scene. Absolutely. It's to like give you like some hope that like, oh, these people will at least make it out of this. 
But because the whole movie has been like just so not positive, <laughs> I, right. it, it almost feels like a betrayal of the tone. And had this been a studio film, I would understand the inclusion of that. Whereas because it's not, it almost feels like a cop-out. Not, it doesn't ruin the film for me by any means. And it does make you feel better that these people will get out. But it it does betray the rest of the, the tone of the rest of the film a little bit for me. Mm-hmm. No, I can understand that for sure. I'm good either way. I think it would have been effective. I think it just depends on what note you want to end your movie on. And mm-hmm. I guess in this case, they said, <laughs> we've been telling such a Debbie Downer story. Maybe let's go for just a touch uplifting. Well, I guess too, let's say we get my way that I'm I'm suggesting and you don't have Malik's voiceover and you don't have them find the CD and you just have this Middle Eastern couple come into town. Like, mm-hmm. well, then you're just like, cool, we just killed this gay couple. We're also going to kill this Middle Eastern couple. <laughs> so that's probably yeah. not the best thing to do. <laughs> yeah. Thinking back to your earlier comment about how it's kind of like the invitation. It's like, that's mm-hmm. really what the end of that film leaves you with, right? This this idea that you should jettison all hope because the worst possible scenario will likely just inevitably happen again. Yeah. Minor spoilers for the invitation, but not too much. Yeah. <laughs> future episode. A 100% future episode, yeah. Okay, well, um, yeah, so final thoughts on Spiral, Joe. So, like you, I rated this about a three and a half, and I think, for me, this ending doesn't quite land as much. It just gets a little too convoluted with, like, the motel stuff and the mm-hmm. drugs and all that kind of... But I really liked how careful the film is to present nuanced, complicated portrayal of a queer couple. Yeah. And I I don't know, like, to me, this is a really good entry into queer horror where it is like tried and true proper queer horror. Like we have we have nearly two years worth of episodes and a lot of the time we're talking about, you know, that one lesbian who gets murdered right. first in that one film. And like, that's not what this is. And this is the kind of representation that I am hungry for. So I really hope that this is the kind of films that we can expect to see moving forward. No, I agree. And I think we had a lot of good discussions about a lot of aspects of queer life. Obviously, we can't do it all justice because like, we don't know all aspects of everyone's life. But I hope that we do get more movies like this so that, yeah, we can keep having those conversations. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we like to have a lot of fun, but every now and then we get a movie like this where it's like, I mean, we had fun talking about it, but we have to talk about not fun subject matter sometimes. So I think, yeah, I'm happy that we get to do that. Agreed. (sighs) All right. So now that we're in on that happy note with a bunch of dead people. (laughs) (laughs) um, Well, yeah. So everyone let us know what you thought of Spiral. And I think we can cross out Spiral. Yes. And cross out Horror Queers. Horror Queers.